Hello everybody, thank you very much for downloading this week's episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. This is just to let you know that the Cinema Catch-Up Club has an official Patreon page. If you'd like to become an official member of the club and get some bonus goodies, including early access material and bonus features only available to our patrons, then please join up at patreon.com forward slash ccuc podcast. And now, for this week's episode. Hello everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host, Stephen Platt. Thank you very much for downloading this week's episode. And this week, we're going back to the Old West. We're going to watch A Fist Full of Dollars. I can't do the rest of that. The wrong theme song, sorry. Yes, uh, as you can hear, we've got two guests here who are eager and ready to launch into this first in the Clint Eastwood Man With No Name trilogy, which culminates in the very famous The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Uh, Our first guest who has not seen the film, it's Katrina Johnston! Hi Stephen! How are you Katrina? I'm getting over a cold, so apologies to listeners, you're going to have to hear a lot of... Noises. That today. was very well timed. Uh, impressive. Uh, for the folks at home, um, who are you, Katrina, and what do you do? Uh, I am a third year lighting design student, um, and I do lighting design, and I'm a lighting technician. Uh, I basically press a lot of fancy light switches a lot mm. and frequently. That's the best description of that job <laughs> I've heard. Um, that's fantastic. <laughs> and this film, A Fistful of Dollars. Yes. What do you know about it? Um, so I was having a think. I, I actually thought, oh, like, oh, I might have actually seen some of this already. And then I, I went, no, actually, that was The Good, Bad and the Ugly. Mm. I've seen a little bit of it. Um, I, I'm aware it's got Clint Eastwood. I'm aware of roughly the time period that it was made. So I'm expecting, like, racism. Mm-hmm. Um, and not a high score on uh, on the Bladell. Is it the Bladell test? The, the uh, I think it's the Bechdel test. Bechdel test. Yeah. I never remember the name of it. Mm. Yeah, so I'm not expecting a high score on that. Um, and I'm like a lot of scenery, I feel like. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, our guest who has seen the film may be able to tell you what you're correct on, what you're not. Uh, it's his debut, everybody. Please welcome Mr. <laughs> Scott Suffling. Hello. Uh, Scott, you? it's lovely to have you on the program. Thank you. Nice um, to meet you. For the folks at home, who are you and what do you do? So I, uh, I went to university with Stephen. Um, I think we're in about the same starting year together. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was uh, mid mid to late noughties. 2008-ish. 2007, we started university. There we go. Yep. Uh, yeah, so I went through that with Steve and um, many other Motley crew and graduated in 2012 with a Bachelor of the Media with a major in screen and sound and a second major in theatre and drama. So technically I should know something about film. Mm. Although naturally, of course, I did what most people who have a university degree do, uh, go into the rest of my life and completely get a job that's completely alternative to what I studied. And uh, now I'm the second mate on board a sail training vessel. That is right. We have a genuine bona fide man of the seas on the podcast. Um, and so we're taking you to the desert yeah. uh, with a fistful of dollars. If I wasn't if I wasn't being a sailor, pirate sort of character, if I hadn't based on, on Pirates of the Caribbean, I mm. probably would have become a cowboy. So, so with this uh, film, because it is part of this very well-known cowboy trilogy, um, what, what can people like Katrina and others who haven't seen this film expect from A Fistful of Dollars? Well, you can, for this film in particular, you can expect a bit of gratuitous violence, mm-hmm. uh, which wasn't actually that common 
during the Golden Cowboy era. So these these films stood out quite considerably to the rest of the sort of genre, mm. which is kind of what made Clint Eastwood famous as well. Um, and and these these ones were filmed sort of at the dying stages of that mm. um, film genre sort of popularity. Mm. Um, and sort of gave him a bit of a kick up the bum and got people interested in it again. Um, sort of late 50s to early 60s was very Americana, sort of cowboys and Indian, sort of lots of that sort of stuff was going on. And it was quite a profitable film market. Um, but Europe being behind the eight ball didn't, was sort of getting onto that a bit late, um, mm. especially the Italians who were ma- decided they were going to make westerns to make a bit of cash. And that's where this film comes in as a spaghetti western. Yes, Ooh. it is. It is uh, an Italian film, technically. Is that where the sp- term spaghetti western comes from? It is. It is. Yes, because a lot of westerns oh were filmed gosh. by Italian companies. Mm. I mm. had no clue. I literally thought it was like they had a lot of pasta. Yeah. No, I thought. Was, I, I kind of thought it was maybe done on the cheap or something like oh, that. Okay, well, yeah, well that, that too. That too. Yeah. We, we'll probably get to sort of um, the production values around the film later on. Um, see what you think after it's been done. I'd be mm. interested to drop a few facts about the film on you after it. Um, but yeah, so you can expect... Um, yeah, th- this film stood out because Sergio Leone and Clint Eastwood kind of did something different to what had been done, and that's why it kind of thrust him into the foresight. Mm. Um, took a little while to, to get hold of um, on the American market, and that's sort of where it blew up. Um, but yeah, so yeah, gratuitous violence. Yes, scenery, um, which, yeah, you'll, you'll like... Horses, but not as many in this one. Yeah, horse riding, cowboys, sort of thing. Mm. Um, can I'd like I to say sexism and racism. Yeah, you probably can a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so to be fair, it is the sixties. So. It is, yeah, and, and there's uh, the whole cultural uh, Mexican sort of thing going on there, where you know Mexicans are the bad guys and that sort of mm. thing. But this this film does shake it up a little bit in that regard, in in ways that sort of you think are going one way, and then you go, oh no, actually, yeah, I, I guess it is a bit just racist. Um, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, maybe I guess. Yeah, as 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 uh, Katrina said, it's the sixties. Yeah. That's the way these things happen. Yeah, it's like it's, it's so good that we don't have those issues now, mm. isn't mm. it, Stephen? Uh, yeah. I'm just gonna choose to segue <laughs> away from that and say, would you guys like to yeah. watch a fistful of dollars? <laughs> Let's do it. Yeehaw! Yeah. For those of you listening at home, pop in your DVDs and prepare to grab a handful of coins as we watch a fistful of dollars. Hey Cinema Catch-Up Club fans, are you by any chance a fan of the world game, of football, of soccer? Well, we have a podcast just for you. That's right, Thoughtchart Productions is bringing out its very own football podcast and it's called The Funny Old Game. Join me and my two special guests, Ryan Fitzgerald and Tommy Dolman, each and every week as we discuss everything that's happening in the world of football. For more information, visit thoughtjarproductions.com or visit our Facebook pages. You can search for The Funny Old Game or Thoughtjar Productions and follow the links there. And now, back to the Cinema Catch-Up Club. And welcome back, everybody. We have just finished watching A Fistful of Dollars. And by we, of course, mean Katrina. Give me some money. And Scott. Yes. So, Katrina, that was your first time watching A Fistful of Dollars. What did you think? I don't know. I, I think I liked it. Uh, I'm glad it was only 90 minutes. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm yeah. going to... 
I'm going to agree with you on that one. Yeah. Um, on the 90 minutes. I, I really don't feel like that story needed to be any longer. No. Uh, but particularly, didn't. it's weird. My memories of this film, I think, are very closely tied to the films that came after it. Um, and I'm starting to realise that maybe why I didn't remember as much of this film is because there's not as much to remember compared to yeah. what they then do with um, a, with I'm, better actors I and mean, a bit more budget. It's a very simple story. Mm. Yeah, it's it's man is a shit stirrer. That, that's the <laughs> yeah. plot. Clint Eastwood's character, um, who in all my notes I just wrote down as Clint Eastwood because uh, he is the man with no yeah. name. Correct. Uh, yeah, he he rocks well. up in town and is basically just like, I'm going to cause some some uh, mess over here. Now yeah. I'm going to do the same like, thing over oh, here. So, some, guys, some guys shot at me, so okay, just have to kill him. He's resourceful. Cool. He's trying to turn a profit out of a situation and mm. potentially for the greater good wipe out seems, both gangs. But he never seems to actually have a clear motivation. Like, yeah, it starts off as profit and then, yeah, it kind of seems like he's trying to rescue a girl. That's a little bit about the character, though. Like, the man with no name is he, his intention. His actions speak louder than his words. In fact, he doesn't have many lines at all anyway. Yeah. So his actions don't speak of anything, he's really. He's quite mysterious. He's the mysterious wandering stranger and things tend to work out in the end and you kind of just got to assume that's how we planned it. Yeah, yeah I guess. So. He kind of just seems like he's going into situations looking to start a fight but woe betide you if you punch him back because then <laughs> he's going to destroy you, he's going to destroy your family, he's going to destroy everything it's Liam Neeson of yeah. Wild West. Yeah, he is. He's the Liam Neeson before Liam Neeson was oh, kinda. was punching people. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen Unforgiven, different film, but I guess, yeah. Well, I think it is interesting, though, in that A Fistful of Dollars, looking at it from, from this perspective, 55 years since its release, mm. uh, going... Um, looking at it and going, yeah, it, it does seem a bit like it's missing something. Or, but, but, but as Scott was saying, it um, is obviously quite revolutionary at the time when you compare mm. it to those early 60s cowboy films that, you know, John Wayne was doing 30 of a year. Yeah, or paint the wagon, that sort of thing. Yeah, which had Clint Eastwood in it, yes. uh, funnily enough, um, the, the musical cowboy film. Um, and we, we, we did uh, Calamity Jane a few, oh, a few yeah. months back on this program, a very different type of Western. Yeah. Um, and you had your gritty westerns, but Scott, I think it's fair in saying that this one, not to evoke another film, had real true grit. Um, it, <laughs> yes. <laughs> does that, John does Wayne that have Eastwood in it? No, it's John Wayne, true grit. Mm. I thought that was like a recent one. They remade oh. it. Yeah. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. That's I didn't why. know they'd remade it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yes, uh, Scott, um, how was it rewatching this film? Uh, good, actually. I quite enjoyed it. Um, I think... It's tricky. It's it's hard to talk about this film in isolation because obviously it is part of a trilogy, and mm. I think anyone without question would say that the finale of the trilogy, the Good, the Bad, the Ugly, is the penultimate. That's the that's mm. sort of what everything was building up towards. Mm. So I, I guess d- you kind of see the beginnings of how they learnt to build build tension. Yeah, that's it. This this film is this. the building blocks that kind of lead up to that. So you appreciate it almost by extension of having an appreciation from the good, the bad, and the ugly, which Mm. feels weird saying it, but I think I'm probably among the majority who have watched that film prior to watching this one, or Mm. in fact may have only seen this film Mm. because I saw the good, the bad, the ugly, and then found out that there were, well, not prequels, but other films in the trilogy. Or maybe I just went out to buy the good, the bad, and the ugly, and it came in a box set with both the others, so I watched them. My experience from watching these films was um, was very much my dad watched westerns quite a lot when I was growing up and specifically The Good, The Bad, The Ugly was one that I remember 
was not only watched all the time, but it's the one that I most distinctly remember and then going, oh, and there's a couple of others. And so I, I think I must have done the same. I think I probably was aware of The Good, The Bad and The Ugly first and then mm. discovered the others through, You, you almost re-watches. come for Clint Eastwood. You come for that character and it's just interesting... I don't know. It's it's like a like an add on for a video game sort of thing, mm. where you know you play the main one and think, oh, this character or this you know this actor or this director is in a different one, and mm. you kind of want to see it. it's like a spin off, even though it's a prequel. It kind of gets treated like a spin off, I guess, a little bit now. I feel like it's quite appropriate that you and while we we're watching that, you guys were comparing it to a video game. Not not just because obviously there's Red Dead Redemption, which is this movie in video game form but also because i didn't care as much as the characters or for the characters mm. um like i do with the video game i don't i don't care too much about characters particularly the one i'm playing usually uh whereas films i tend to care a bit more but for this one i just i was like oh yeah there's a woman who's been separated from her child oh that's a little bit sad Oh, there's these people still hanging around this town, even though it's just two crime families. <laughs> I'm like, oh, the crime families are all dead now. Okay. Yeah, it, I mean that that video game comparison, I think, is really interesting, and in that this mm. this film very much did feel like a series of set pieces that were quite compartmentalized. Where it's, yeah, it felt very episodic. Yeah, and yeah. in a way, I think that that worked quite well for this film, mm. and you know, it it, it kept what the man with no name was doing and his actions um like maybe a little bit easier to follow that they were all compartmentalized yeah Um, like like a series of missions almost like you know yeah Yeah. but because of that i found it really hard to be like okay why is he doing any of this like Mm. i know Mm. i know we we've already said yeah he motivation was for money and then he was trying to clean up the town but none of it seemed to ring in any kind of truth yeah i think what this film did and what the subsequent films did as well is it really established the fact that people quite like clint eastwood Mm. but not necessarily yes this character he's playing later on in his career when he's playing characters like dirty harry or his character from unforgiven um yeah you know he's creating characters which you remember a bit more distinctly the man with no name is arguably memorable because yeah. of that that lone wanderer trope that, that mystery yeah. that absence of mm. well because it's such a blank face i mean you, you kind of project yeah. your own yourself yeah. into that role and mm. he, he's kind of like a video cam a, a video game character in that yeah. way because you kind of you see yourself being the bad well the baddie goody depends on what you want to look yeah, at yeah you can and and i can imagine when was this when did this film come out this was released in italy in 1964 and then in america in 1967 okay so yeah i can i can totally imagine like american teenagers really getting excited about that oh yeah i'm going to just walk into somewhere and, and shoot up a town and I'm going to be a hero and I'm just like, I th- I nobody's going to hold me back kind yeah, of Yeah, part of the mis- thing about him is that he could be anyone. You know, you yeah. could be him, you know, back in the Western days. He kind of, you, you, anyone can implant themselves upon that fantasy mm. because that character's like such in a blank slate. S- in mm. some ways you can kind of see, I, I don't know why I feel that there is a comparison here, but I could kind of compare him to James Dean's character in... Um, Rebel Without a Cause. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen that. Mm, so I can't one. comment. It's a good one. I, I want to go back to sort of character development and growth and sort of motive, like we were talking about. Because <laughs> you're saying you can't really see his motives through the whole thing. Mm. I would argue that. That obviously he comes into town as a as a mercenary. Yeah. Uh, 
you know, bounty hunter, hide gun, whatever. Mm. And he scopes out the situation and he's there to make some profit. And for pretty much the first two thirds of the film, everything he does is to put more money into his pocket by playing yeah. the two rival gangs against each other. But then he has that moment where they do the trade mm. where he realizes that this is, you know, he can take the opportunity to get rid of the families. And then he, in doing that, in undertaking the action of freeing Marisol and her family, mm. he basically stuffs up his plan and gets captured and beat up and then, you know, it's on for on for young and old. So he basically he try decides that he's gonna turn this into a good situation rather than just a profitable yeah. situation and kinda trips up because of it. <laughs> but obviously comes back and saves the day at the end anyway. I understand the logic of what you're saying. And I don't necessarily disagree. But, but... none of it none <laughs> of it feels like it's rings true i don't know why maybe maybe it's just as i've stated before sometimes i'm just in in certain moods and i'm like no no i'm just not buying what you're selling Mm -hmm. um and maybe i'm just in that mood or just maybe it's because he's such a blank slate for me Mm. maybe it's because i'm i'm the only girl of the three of us watching it well i do think that's an interesting point as well because i mean this film is is particularly male gazy yeah. um, and, and playing into that male fantasy yeah. of, you know, you don't tend to get many women who fantasize about living in the 1870s going, oh boy, cholera, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. <laughs> oh, I wish I was in a brothel in a whole house. Oh yeah, yeah. boy, not having any control over my of my reproductive system. That's yeah, great. So, so in terms of the, the sort of fantasy power trip that people subliminally put themselves yeah. into... Clint Eastwood's boots uh, mm. are doing. Obviously, that does not appeal to a female audience. And I think that what that also means is that if you're looking for other things to try and enjoy from this film and they're mm. lacking, then it's a film that's not necessarily going to appeal to, to you. Yeah, yeah, mm. which could be. And although I will say there is one film that I've seen that I used to love when I was in primary school that does do that for women. Okay. Uh, and I can't remember the name of the film, but it's oh. a Sharon Stone film. <laughs> mm-hmm. And she she plays the she's specialist. like sorry. Oh, no, it's it's and it's also got Leonardo DiCaprio in it, oh, okay. um, and a couple. Oh, and Russell Crowe. That's oh. right. I forget about him. We'll have to look into um, this. And yeah, she plays this this woman who's on a vengeance trip. Who she's trying to avenge her her father who was killed by this criminal. You are talking about one of my favourite westerns. Oh, really? The Quick and the Dead. <gasps> yes. yes. Okay. I used I to love it. that when mm. I when I first saw it on TV. I was like, this girl is so cool. She yeah. was, yeah, yeah. The Quick and the Dead yeah. um, is is a really fun like cowboy film. Uh, yeah. And you're you're very right. They they by having a, a female protagonist and you know like this interesting cavalcade of characters mm. in it like russell crowe's a priest in, in yeah, that film a pre- <laughs> well a a reformed criminal who's become a priest that's right yeah and leonardo dicaprio it's been a long time since i've watched it leo's like the young he's the son of the guy who kind of like runs the town right okay yeah it's 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 a fun go go watch quick and the dead as well as a fistful of dollars guys it's it, that yeah. that's a fun one um but again that film and i would say pretty much any sort of um Western or even broaden it out to a lot of genre films owe a big debt to the way that um, A Fistful of Dollars set up this yes. world because there were those long lingering uh, horse riding montages as you said where <laughs> yes. we saw yeah. um, gratuitous horse riding I've, yeah, I scenery. feel like we lost a little bit in this film by, by watching it at home Hmm. I feel it would be very interesting for me if I would feel more engaged in to a cinema the film. screen. Yeah, in cinema, being able to be immersed in those big landscapes. We were talking about women in the film. Yes. Let's talk about the women in the film. 
because there were really only two. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there was um, uh, Marisol, who um, was was captured, or had been captured sometime before the start of the mm-hmm. film, and I thought it was really interesting the way that she was presented, um, in that initially it did look as though it was like, ooh, love interest for yeah, Clint. Or, uh, but or, turned out to be actual damsel in distress, but she doesn't play a damsel in distress, so to speak. Yeah. She's... Kind of, kind of, but not really. Yeah, I find like it's almost like she's given up hope already. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I found the I found the women characters very, very interesting in well, the fact that you know we talked we, I mentioned the um, Bechdel test, hmm. and in some ways they kind of passed the Bechdel test because, although they never actually speak to other each other, so that kind of yeah okay. cancels it out. She's actually a German actor, um, who was in on that one. I can't Which remember one? her name. Uh, the, Mar- the, Marisol, yeah, uh, it's Marianne Koch who yes. uh, is very famous for, um, well, as a German actor, and uh, there's a little bit about what happened to her in her career in the Ooh. trivia section. In the little bit. Uh, but-, um, but that's the interesting thing as well about um, westerns is they were the first avenue throughout the history of of um, Hollywood where. Spanish actors, Italian actors, German actors actually got their big break because they were considered ethnic, mm. which is also like leads sort of into discussions of racism and whitewashing that has been in like endemic in Hollywood. There's some interesting things that go along with that and also how the film was made and the production mm. values and mm. things like that, well, which we can yeah. talk about in a little bit. Well, I want to talk about the other character, yes. the other female character, uh, um, the matriarchal character. Yes. Mrs. Uh, Baxter. Mrs. Well, Mrs. Baxter, I'd assume, yeah. yeah. I don't actually she, know her first yeah, name. I don't think it's mentioned. Uh, her first name is Consuelo, I believe. Oh, okay. yeah. Um, but yes, uh, Mrs. Baxter, who... Um, can curse out a bunch of cowboys uh, oh. when when needed. Um, Slaps her son about. Yeah, <laughs> has yeah. a great death. Yep. Yeah. Not bad. Great um, death throws. And basically, is obviously the financial manager of the mm. household. Mm. Um, yeah. Her her husband is sort of played borderline incompetent. Mm. Um, not the brightest, but um, yeah, she's obviously the the brains of the operation in yeah. the household, and I think it's. It's a little bit telling. I think they were trying to maybe make a bit of a message about the whole Western theme, the sign of the times, is that um, that household... Everyone had to be hard. Yeah, but also that that household couldn't stand up against just pure male violence when it came down to it. I also feel like it's interesting that the Mexican characters killed the English or the American American characters and then were themselves killed by an American character. The... American gang kind of hits mm. first. They're the ones who end up shooting yeah. at Clint Eastwood first at the start of the film and set mm. themselves up to be the baddies. And then with a bit of to and fro, they sort of are made out to be the more reasonable of the two sides. Yeah. And then that sort of rammed home at the conclusion when the Mexican gang sort of just slaughters them and you go, oh, okay, so these are the real bit bad guys. Not mm. that I'm going to miss them as much, but I, th- I think the direction of the film or the writing kind of sets the Mexicans up to be the extra bad guys. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it's... And they were just... Just bad guys. They just weren't great people, but these guys are definitely the worst evil. of two evil. Yeah, because they murdered a bunch of you know Americans. Well, I think awesome. it's interesting because this film, although is considered a you know a Hollywood classic, is not a Hollywood produced film. It is it, not. It That's is as we said, it's a spaghetti western. It was filmed um, between uh, Italy, Spain, and West Germany were the three countries that oh, provided wow. the, the funding. Yeah, very continental. A, a lot mm-hmm. of this was shot in Spain because pretty much all of it. Yeah, yeah, because it looked um, it looked, right. looked enough like Mexico, or at least certain areas of it yeah. looked yeah. enough like that. And it was cheap. 
And it was a lot cheaper, yeah, than filming over there. So um, I, I, the fact is, you know, a lot of the cast and the crew are European actors. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that then affected if you've got a European creative team telling this story about the Old West in another continent. Mm. They're less likely to be um, biased one way or another towards certain groups. So yeah, maybe that is point you're Yeah, maybe that is why we had not an even distribution of evil between the two gangs, but they were both shown as being kind of bad. You know, you didn't have the, the good old Baxters who were making apple pies yeah. and then they got gunned down. Living the American yeah. dream. Yeah. I yeah. See, yeah. I, I, I and helping the orphans in the village. Yeah. yeah. It was very much set up as being, um, as being, yeah, the, the, they're and all think, bastards. And I think also the fact that what's really telling, and although that being said, I'm not a expert by any means on the Western genre, there are no Native Americans. No, not this one. Well, this which, one sits which, yeah. south of the border. But there are still Native Americans of of a type. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're in discussed in passing, you know, that they sell weapons to all these different groups. Yeah, that, that's the only time it's brought up is mm. that they basically, these two gangs come south of the border, stock up on guns and liquor mm. so they can, cheaply so they can go sell them to the Indians north of the border. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, now, my memory of the other two films isn't superb, Scott. Are there Native American characters or gangs in uh, the other two? That's pretty much a negative. Yeah. 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 Um, I... I'm. Yeah. No, I can't. Nothing springs to mind out of the. There's definitely none of the good, the bad, and the ugly that mm. I can. Remember. But I, I just found it interesting that there's not even any because so, I, I think sometimes quite often in other westerns they weren't even used as characters, almost just as set dressing. You don't yeah. even see, see any walk, yeah. um, to, walk to, in the background. To jump back to Calamity Jane from a few yeah. weeks ago, they were almost like a natural force. They were like, ah, oh, it's a typhoon. Ah, oh, the engines are attacking, as, yeah. as um, that's Doris right. Day yeah. would sort of sing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that's maybe an interesting thing, partly because I, I think that the story that they were trying to tell was about specific characters as yeah. opposed to groups and i yeah. think it's also partly because this text is not entirely original it's it's based off uh, the japanese film yojimbo oh is it yes yeah um, it's a rip off of a kiwa kurosawa film and be- just like many other westerns are yeah mm. and because maybe that particular text didn't have like a a group that would fit um what uh, the way native americans were portrayed in films at that time yeah maybe they're just not in it because they didn't feel there was a part for them in the story because mm. the story that they were taking was being told originally in this japanese yeah. um context and that is very much about rival families Mentioned and honor I, and, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd just be interested if if to if there's like any research on it or something like that looking at how when since since there is this whole genre of European made, but American stories, hmm. Hmm. Um, comparing it to the American made American stories, and how like is it just the Indians or the Native Americans are ignored? Are they are they told better? Are they told more evenly? Because obviously Americans, just like Australians with Indigenous people, we have a, we have blind spots to the people we have historically oppressed. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it's in a, oh, they have to be in these kind of roles. And sometimes it's in a, um, they're just as window dressing. It just, yeah. it would, it would be interesting. In, in regards to the making of the film in Europe uh, mm. for an uh, arguably American audience, um, the film was made primarily for Italian and European audiences. Mm. Um, basically you, you had a, you mentioned at the start of the film about the dialogue, the dubbing, yeah. everything shot silent. 
on scene. There's, oh, really? There's no one seen film, uh, sound recording. Oh. Everything's done in post. That way, it doesn't matter what language you got, you just get your voice actors in at the end. So yeah. almost all the performers on the on the Rojas side, they're mixing a gang, uh, Italian or Spanish, yeah. and would would have been talking or dubbing lines in their native language. Um, oh. Clint Eastwood was one of the very few people on set who actually spoke English. Um, Sergio Leone doesn't speak English. Wow. Sergio Leone has never been to America when, oh, he, my gosh. when he made these films. Yeah. Wow. And had no idea what the West ha- was like. Well, yeah, knew what it was like because obviously his experience would come from other Western films. But which is never obviously been there. which is obviously through a very specific lens. Mm. Yes. So like, so that, so basically they hired Clint Eastwood, who is um, basically got referred to them um, through a series of other associations. They wanted other big name actors who basically kept turning it down, mm. um, going and filming in Italy in sort of the off season from Hollywood was sort of looked down upon a little bit in the acting circles, but Clint Eastwood was offered a lead role, whereas previously, I think, Rawhide? Rawhide was the series that he was still an actor in at the time. Yes, he was uh, a supporting actor in that. But he was also playing very much a good character in, in Rawhide. And um, the it's idea... It's to think of Clint Eastwood as a good character. Well, that's just it. It's, it's these roles which made him the actor you go to yeah. for those like morally ambiguous because um hard I, haven't, of, yeah. I haven't seen that many clint eastwood films like pretty much it's gran torino yeah that's it okay well but, yeah it's basically just him squinting again yeah <laughs> yeah but i know but in, in a good way. i know in dirty harry it's like very similar kind of feel and yeah, i had at least in that too. yeah i at least had a vague idea of um good bad and the ugly and all that mm. and yeah it's just him being gruff yeah as you said squinting and going these films were his big break his first lead roles and yeah it was filmed in 1964 Mm. but like i said wasn't released in the u.s until 1967 so three years later Mm. so they basically went filming stuff and he did the sound the voice recording of his own voice yeah like three years later when it was due for the american audience he hadn't bothered to do it before then because the only releases had been in europe and they did quite well in italy and and germany and europe and that sort of thing yeah, well, it was the highest-grossing film of all time in Italy at the time this was released. Wow. There you go. Yeah, this was this was very successful in in Italy, obviously partly because it's an Italian production. Yeah. Um, also because when you compare it to the other westerns of the time, this film looks great. Um, yes. In fact, fifty plus years on, this film it, still looks great. Yeah, Shot like, very like well. I said, like like I said, I'd really appreciate to see this at um, at a cinema because I think it would just be amazing Mm. like i i enjoyed looking at it um like i almost feel like if it didn't have any dialogue i'd probably like the film better (laughs) well it didn't when they shot it yeah i know but actually like get rid of the dubbing the dubbing took away would you like this as like the old style silent films where the type there's cards with the dialogue maybe not that because (laughs) i feel like that would take me out of it a bit Mm. too much but you know just play music the music was gorgeous. Yes. Uh, the music is very important that we touch yeah. on because uh, it's it's Morricone, who is um, one of the most well-known film score composers of all time because he's the guy that did The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. You know, yeah. if any time we do any sort of cowboy film, people, you, you know, you go to someone, you Whistle go, wah, 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 they're going to go, wah, wah, wah. Yeah, I attempted to do it earlier, but I'm mm. not going to. Mm. <laughs> and, um, but the, the music is, I think, very important in creating the atmosphere around this film mm. because particularly in a film where they didn't record any sound at the scene mm. and where 
all the sound effects are added mm. post. Yeah. Um, I think perhaps that can have an alienating effect as an audience because the the lips don't quite match up to the dialogue for all the yeah. characters. Um, but so, the filming and the shooting and the editing fits in with the music so well. Yeah, I think the music really, in the same way that I think music was so important to the success of Star Wars, mm. I feel as though this soundtrack um, you, is, is massively important to making this film really work. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, uh, uh, the score was composed prior to the film being shot. Uh-uh. And um, yeah, appara- apparently Sergio Leone was really not keen on working with this up-and-coming composer who he'd never heard of yeah. um and the only thing they really had in common is that they both spoke italian and uh yeah apparently when he heard the the score for it he was like yeah yeah this is good this is what mm. yeah i think in the later films i heard i can't remember where i might have read or heard it that some of the films some of the sh- sh- shots and the scenes in the later films actually were ran on intentionally longer so that they would fit in with the music better. Oh, wow. Mm. Mm. How did he compose it then if he hadn't seen any of the film? Did he just the script and... Did he just do it to, like, the Japanese film? Or Well, um, it's interesting because um, the director, Leone, actually used screenings of Yojimbo whilst putting um, together the, sh- the shooting storyboard. It was yeah. literally a storyboard. off. Yeah. Um, so... He definitely utilised that. I don't know if Morricone did, but all we know is that Morricone was given, this is what the film's about, this is the feel of the film, this is what we want. And he went away and invented a soundtrack, which even before you get to The Good, The Bad and The Ugly... It's this is pretty iconic. This is mm. this is what we all associate Western music as sounding like. It, the title sequence with the red and black and the yeah. white text, which has been utilized by countless things like Red Dead Redemption, as mm. we were yeah. discussing before. Th- this film really is kind of setting up. All right, okay, we've it's had westerns. Setting up the tropes. This, this is, is western. this is the western. This is the film that in thirteen years' time or whenever it was released, Mel Brooks is going to release Blazing Saddles. Yeah, too. yeah. like like this to is knock it off. Yeah, the, yeah. This is the. This is the film which is being set up to establish a new version of the genre. This Be- is the mm. prime example. Yeah, and, and it's... the music only got better in the yeah. next one. Mm. The, the score, the score is even better for um, a few dollars more, and mm. then it just blows it out of the park into good magical. You, you can't get that tune out of your head. <laughs> yeah, it's it's incredible, and I think it feeds really well into the tension, which is something that becomes more of a, a factor in the later films, the use of um, those shots, those long shots of like the people staring at each eyes. other yeah. to build tension. In this, it almost feels like they're just dipping their toe in the water and trying yeah. it out. And mm. it, but for me, it worked. Did it work for you as a first-time viewer, Katrina? It did, but unfortunately, the tropes got to me first. Mm. Oh, so right. it's, it's comical now for right. me. Um, because, you know, it's like... It, because this is the first one maybe doing that, um, you know, Simpsons have knocked it off. So many comedies have mm. knocked it off. Um, and that it's now, it's just, it's it's comedy. It is. I, I mean, I, 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 I mean, disagree. You just, I still think it holds up really well. I think it does, but there's an underlying part of me that it's just like, <laughs> <laughs> that just makes me think of, oh, is it, um, I think it's Family Guy or one of those cartoons where mm. there's always these random shots of a of a monkey or no American Dad there's like a monkey or something that mm. randomly appears and just like stares and at someone stares. and points mm. and it's always quite confronting. Yeah, yeah, I, I think the the creation of tension via that the film, the music, the way the mm. shots are cut, um, the editing and the framing. Yeah, um, is this is sort of genesis for that. Um, yeah, and like you're saying, we saw a bit of it in this film, and then there's a bit more 
different sort of stuff mm. in the next one and then good and yeah the ugly like the gunfight scene at the end of that is the penultimate yeah. how, how long can you look at a screen when essentially nothing's happening but still just be like mm. enraptured yes um, yeah. so yeah so so this just just the way you know yeah the the looks between eyes you know the, the cut to the hand by the gun you mm. know the the wide shot mm. so you can remember where everyone's standing and the layout and that sort of thing it just it builds the picture in your head and i think that's why this film did really well when it did get to america yeah is because like you said grittiness mm. um r- realism people were saying oh it's like you're there and in, it probably, in the west and it probably came to america at the right time so this was released in 67 you said 67 it came to america yeah yes. so it it was interesting when I was thinking earlier today about this about this film and what I was aware of it. Like I think I kind of knew vaguely that it was like one of the first really gritty Americana films. I was like, it's kind of like Easy Rider in that sense. It came out mm. at the right time. Yeah, yeah. It in... was very much there was an audience that had different tastes. Yeah. Uh, to to what had come in the previous decade. They were kind of sick of the traditional American western. When this came out, they were like, oh, it's a traditional American western, but it's good. Yeah. Mm. Well, of... well, no. I think it goes back to what Murray and I were talking about with Easy Rider. In that early fifties, Americans want to hear about how good they were. And then by the late 60s, Americans were a bit sick of, of everything that was going on. And they were like, no, actually, life's just a bit crap. And we want that reflected at least a little bit in our films. And so, yeah, and, and I think films responded to that. Um, they were like, Things okay. Got a bit more gritty and realistic. Yeah, yeah we, we're done with the, the shine. The shine has come off the frontier. Hmm. And the... Um, I think Carmen mentioned it actually on Wizard of Oz. Americans have this idea of exceptionalism, yeah, which is a very interesting concept. Um, and they're kind. And I think in the late sixties, they were a little bit sick of it, and so they were looking at exceptionalism in a different sense. They were looking at it in how oh, we're exceptional because we're we're tough as nails and we don't take crap from anybody and everything and we kill yeah. everyone, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think there's there's certainly a lot that can be examined with this film. Um, but I do want to ask, yes. do you have a favourite moment from the film? Because I actually think this film has a lot of really good standout set pieces and moments. Um, we'll start with you first, Scott, because you've probably had a longer time to think about this. Uh, possibly. Um, I, I do quite like towards the beginning, when he has the initial showdown with the four cowboys, where he's talking about them upsetting his mule. Mm. Um, yeah, it's sort of a cheek, cheeky way into sort of goading people into having a go at you. Mm. Um, I think it does a lot to set up Clint Eastwood's character at the start of the film, um, and it's quite clever and, yeah, I quite like that. Um, but, it, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the final showdown's also excellent. Mm. Um, they're probably the two standout moments. Mm. For me, some some of the witticisms and other stuff that goes on is quite fun as well. But mm. um, yeah, semantically especially, um, yeah, those that first shootout and the last shootout are the big ones. For you, Katrina, um, maybe that first that very first scene where he's drinking at the waterhole at mm. the well, uh, where we have the establishment of of Marisol and the little kid, um, partly for how kind of oddball it was. And it was just it took it took me a while to to figure out what was going on and things like that. Um, See, for me, yeah. it's it's Chico getting killed with a barrel. That's that's <laughs> um, which I'd completely forgotten about. 
yeah. then you just have this almost like comedic barrel roll. Yes. Rolling, rolling, rolling. Yeah. And then all the strings rolling, are swollen. Keep them barrels rolling, rolling roll high. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it was it was it was a nice moment of like lighthearted Looney Tunes style violence, um, which I think all westerns need. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I quite I didn't I took it a little bit more seriously, and then I guess I was like, <laughs> oh damn. Well, I mean that's just it though. This this film provided high drama. It provided some moments that were maybe a bit farcical, but were fun. Mm. Uh, for me, I think like the highlight in terms of um, visual storytelling was was the way the Rojos killed the Baxters by setting the front of their house on fire and then just yeah. gunning them down as they came that, out. Th- that was definitely impressive. It was impressive, it was effective, it was heart-wrenching, it was vicious and cowardly, and mm. it was all of those things which other Westerns weren't showing. Oh, actually, my favourite moment, yeah, Mrs. Baxter's death. That yeah. was an extreme yeah, death. So part of that, yeah. yeah, particularly when Laughing Rojo Boy shot her. <laughs> and Ramon just gives him a look like, like what dude, are you doing? Yeah, what's wrong with you? It's like, we murder and burn people. We don't shoot women. Yeah. We've only got two of them in the film. That guy yeah. actually sits around and laughs at everything that's going on the whole film, does absolutely bugger all. And then he's at the end, he's like, yeah, I'm just going to shoot this woman. He's like, you're a yeah. dirtbag, man. Like, yeah. Even his own brother's like, you're shit. <laughs> yeah. um, would you guys like some trivia about uh, A Fistful of Dollars? Yes, yes please. You might know some of it already. Yeah, okay. I think, I think you might. Prior to this picture, in American films, whenever a person was shot, one camera was focused on the shooter who fired his weapon, and a split second later, the director quickly cut to the victim who could be seen being hit and falling to the ground or whatever it is that mm. they fall on. Uh, Clint Eastwood knew this had always been the way in such scenes when shot in the States, but didn't mention it to Sergio Leone, who was shooting in a different uh, perspective. Yeah. Uh, Leone shot the first scene involving any kind of major violence in this picture with the camera from over Eastwood's shoulder as though the viewer was right there with him. So yeah. when this film was then shown to American film audiences who've been codified to expect, you see John Wayne pull the trigger, you see the bad guy clutch his guts and fall over. Yeah. What you were actually seeing was Clint Eastwood pull the trigger time. and someone getting shot and staggering and that happened throughout this film and oh. I think that might be one of the reasons why it was quite effective yeah mm. because yeah, quite something something quite new that yeah. cutaway sort of re- removes cause and effect a little bit like you see the cause and effect but it removes the the, the yeah like it re- the, the culpability the of that action yeah. mm. and I thought that was used pretty well because there was some of the Shot, shot, shot the guy shooting, shot the guy falling over. That kind of thing yeah. was still used, particularly in the graveyard shootout. Yeah. Um, but I, <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> there was a lot of shootouts. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but I think one of the ways it was used very effectively was in that final shootout with Ramon, where he's um doing a Marty McFly. If we can ah, reverse yeah, no, it, no, no, Marty yeah. McFly. Marty McFly did it in the eighteen eighties. I'll have you ah, know. So <laughs> so before this film was yeah. set. Oh, I get it. Yeah, before this film was even so, made. So he um, saw Marty McFly yeah. and went, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. um, but but, but we're, we're seeing it from Ramon's perspective and we're seeing the man with no name fall down and then get back up yeah. and go, you got to go for the heart. Yeah. And it's it's really actually quite effective because it's like, is he a ghost? What What is mm. this? Yeah, if you, if you haven't picked up on the armour thing, the, like, the scene before, you you'd be like, what? Ramon's mm. a bloody idiot. Oh, he could have headshotted him. Yeah. That's the whole thing. Like, he's like, oh, I always shoot for the heart. Yeah, you know? I and, get that. And Clint Eastwood uses that. I get that. but And, and th- this is me trying to bring w- real world logic to films, <laughs> yeah. which is always problematic. But I'm like, clearly shooting for the heart isn't working. If the first six shots of the body haven't been effective, I probably would have <laughs> popped him in the head too. I mean, if you're but... one of his other gangsters as well, you'd be like, we're not going to get killed if he doesn't realise. <laughs> Let I'm just going to shoot him in the head. He'll be cross at me, but yeah. we, we'll be but alive. But we'll be alive. Yeah. Um, after considering Henry Fonda for the role. Um, not surprised. 
the director, Sergio Leone, offered the role of the man with no name to James Coburn, who was too expensive. Uh, Charles Bronson also turned it down, mm. describing it as the worst script I've ever seen. <laughs> would too. Well, there's barely any script, I'd imagine. Not much, no. Uh, Richard Harrison also declined the role, but pointed Leone in the direction of Rawhide. Uh, Leone then offered the part to Rawhide star Eric Fleming, who turned it down, but suggested Clint Eastwood for the part. So that, oh. that's the chain that it went down to get there. So Clint's fifth or sixth choice in this wow. one. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that I don't know if any of those other actors would have made this role work in the way that he did. Other than Henry Fonda, I don't really know any of the names. So. Uh, yeah, I kind of think it's irrelevant. None of them would have been willing to go to Italy and do the shoot. <laughs> well, there is that, but I also think that what what you were, what I think, what really worked well is that you didn't know as an audience in the sixties. Didn't know much about it. You didn't know Clint Eastwood. Mm. You just yeah. saw him turn up and be an absolute mysterious badass in this film, and like have a whole Iron Man sequence where he builds armor and just, yeah. you know, he's he's blowing up things and making entrances and and taking a beating and killing people with barrels. I do like that for the last scene. It's like, here, take this dynamite and you can use it. And all he does is use it for a cool entrance. I'm like, yeah. 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 He's, a re- he's a showman. He's a conjurer. He's a magician. And then life. escapes in a coffin. But he yeah. couldn't have, yeah, he probably couldn't have pulled that off if he was already a large established actor from yeah. some rather if, you know, if, yeah. if this was, you know, like the, the big cowboy star of the day, John Wayne, you, yeah. you, you wouldn't buy it. You'd be like, no. why isn't John Wayne acting like John Wayne does in all the other films where he's John Wayne? <laughs> Even when he's playing Genghis Khan. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, it just wouldn't have worked with John Wayne hiding in a coffin going, all right, let's get out of here. This show's over. Like, it just would not work at all. When Clint Eastwood arrived on set, he was struck by how little the Italian crew and writers knew about the American West. For example, he had to point out that coonskin caps were worn by frontier men and trappers in the 1820s, not by gunfighters in the 1870s. And I feel like they're also not in that area. There is that as well, yes. Um, But yeah, I just like the idea of all these people dressed like Davy Crockett wandering (laughs) around and Clint going... Uh, you might want to move that forward about half a century. Yeah, and, <laughs> like and, I said, and like about... Sergio Leone, and, and none of the other guys there had ever been to the States. They'd never been mm. to the Wild West. And you'd also want to move it about, I don't I have no sense of distance in the States, but at least 500 to 1,000 Ks mm. south. Oh, definitely, yeah. No, a, yeah. a, a coonskin cap, a, a cap is probably just going to go a bit manky in that in that um, weather. Along that... with you, yeah. you would go a bit manky. Mm. Uh, Clint Eastwood helped in creating his character's distinctive visual style by providing most of his own costume. Uh, So the black jeans that he wore were bought from a sports shop on Hollywood Boulevard, the hat came from a Santa Monica wardrobe firm, and the trademark black cigars came from a Beverly Hills store. Eastwood himself cut the cigars into three pieces to make them shorter. Uh, Eastwood himself is a non-smoker. Oh. Uh, but he found that by smoking the cigars and getting that sort of acrid smoke taste, it helped him get into the character yeah, of sure being would. someone who's really surly. And... He's just, <laughs> yeah, because he's, he's high on nicotine. He's like, <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I had no idea he was a non-smoker yeah. because his, that he, is surprising. You just kind actually. of assume it was the case mm. for back then. Those yeah. cigars really come into his character in the um, in Good, Bad, and the Ugly. Yeah, doesn't yeah. he use it for like an explosion? Or no, something? the the bat, one of the other characters uses it to track him essentially because he keeps uh... leaving his dirty cigars lying around. <laughs> yeah, it's it is really fascinating. Mm. Um, the film was originally called The Magnificent Stranger. Um, which makes it sound a bit more like the magician that he was. <laughs> makes it sound like Willy Wonka's about yes. to appear. Makes it sound like they couldn't afford another six cowboys, but anyway. Yeah. 
Um, the title wasn't changed to A Fistful of Dollars until almost three days before the movie premiered wow. in theatres. Nobody bothered to mention uh, that the name of the film had changed to Clint Eastwood. Uh, and as a result, Eastwood remained virtually unaware of the positive buzz surrounding the movie until <laughs> an agent pointed it out to him in Variety magazine three weeks later. Oh, wow. <laughs> hey, that movie's blowing up. What? I've never heard of that film. Oh, I'm in that. Cool. <laughs> yeah, basically. So he's there waiting for this magnificent stranger film to, to take off. <laughs> he's like, why has nobody seen my film? Oh. <laughs> um. So, this film is a remake of 1961's Yojimbo, uh, which itself was based on uh, a previously unadapted 1929 novel, Red Harvest. Um, the film's US release was delayed until 1967 because the screenwriters, uh, Kurosawa and Kikushima, sued the filmmakers of A Fistful of Dollars wow. uh, for their own Fistful of Dollars uh, because it was a breach of copyright. Uh, Kurosawa won and as a result received 15% of the film's worldwide gross and exclusive distribution rights for Japan, Taiwan and South Korea. Kurosawa later said that he made more money off this project than he did Yojimbo. This film was not only Sergio Leone's um, most profitable film he'd ever made, it was also the most profitable film he had made for Akira Kurosawa. <laughs> Good. So He deserves it. It's the Kurosawa. most expensive film that guy didn't make. Yeah. Um, and, I'm cl- and I'm glad that, that they were able to get that because I, mm. I feel as though... I believe that. I think I settled out of court for that. Yeah. Option, yeah. 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 And, I, you know, it's... I mean, the, the Kurosawa films are fascinating films and the way that they're shot is yeah. um is particularly uh, excellent particularly for the time period that they these films were being made yeah. they were doing stuff a decade before anyone else in the world was doing the type mm. of films that he was making mm. and i am quite I, I it is pleasing to hear that at the very least his work isn't being completely ripped off without recompense yeah and so much of this film is tied into how yujimbo was was created you, they couldn't get away with it they, they absolutely yeah. had to had to give them something well, for literally it. watching the movie as i was taking the notes on the script and the writing so hmm. if you if you also like horses riding around for pointlessly ridiculous lengths of time i thoroughly recommend akira kurosawa's version of Macbeth. yeah there's a lot of horses riding around in fog <sighs> for just i've yeah. seen that and it's <laughs> <laughs> they don't even have a good like at least in a in in a sergio leone film you've got a magnificent scenery to go with it but um it's mostly just fog in japan yeah or i've seen that film i can't remember where i watched it i think it might actually been a class that all three of us had yeah Mm. back at uni but i just remember it was so difficult to get through it was just so dense and the fog was very dense yeah (laughs) and and like you if anyone watches it, you think the the stairs and pauses are long in Fistful of Dollars, you ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) Uh, According to Once Upon a Time in the Italian West by Howard Hughes, Sergio Leone spotted a tree whilst on location, and he thought that would be the perfect tree to have as the hanging tree at the beginning of the film. So the tree was dug up and relocated to the set. Uh, Leone reportedly uh, confiscated it from a local farmer by pretending to be a highway official who was in charge of removing dangerous trees. I can I can totally see that happening in bureaucratic Italy at the time, and and you know no one had no one had cotton onto that. I'd just go with it. Yeah. Um, Sergio Leone warmed to Clint Eastwood quite quickly, despite the language barrier they had, and uh, joked uh, that he only had two expressions. What were those expressions, Scott? I believe that would be with hat or without hat. That's exactly right. (laughs) Very good at squinting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Leone was so enraptured with Morricone's score that he would frequently let scenes run longer than they were originally intended, just so the music could play out fully. There you go. That's so... It's so sweet in a way. Yeah, and, and he was doing it in this film. Uh, the yeah. horse sequence is longer than it needed to be just because the music was fantastic. Mm. 
lovely, lovely stuff. The man with no name is actually got a name. Uh, oh. Yeah, his name is Joe. Um, yeah, the, well, the the yeah the, the Undertaker character calls him Joe repeatedly through the film. Yeah. I don't know if that's just a name he's decided to use for him. But, yeah. but he never he's never introduced. He never says his own name. <coughs> um, it could be just one of those you know stereotypical names like um uh, oh um, yeah hey for... Bob. hey buddy hey pal no 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 <laughs> not more like um like referring to someone from a country like. You know, Australians are referred to as no, Bruce, and, go, oh, and must be Hans, men, yeah. um, British are referred to as oh, what's the? I mean, Stephen will do. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> no, I was like, you know, it's very, it's a very World War Two sort of thing. Tommy's. Yeah, Tommy's. Yeah, yeah Tommy's. The Germans um, with Jerry. Yeah, uh, that kind of thing. It's um, it's interesting if um in the second film, so in for a few dollars more. Uh, again, his name is never said by himself or any other characters, but somebody asks about him. And yeah. they said, oh, they, they call that guy Man- Manco, mm. which is Spanish for one-armed. Because in that film, um, the Clint Eastwood character, same character, man with no name, whatever, only yeah. uses his left arm for day-to-day tasks. Lighting cigarettes, oh. punching people, scratches nuts, only over the left arm. Because mm. the right hand is always by his gun On for his shooting. Gun. Mm. Mm. Um, he is also technically, in the closing credits, named as joe oh okay which is in, but oh. just for this film oh. so oh, okay i think yeah maybe they cottoned on to the idea of the man with no name a bit more Rolled um, with it a little yeah they they, yeah. It, they sort of were successful and went okay let's lean into that let's yeah. let's do that um clint eastwood wore the same boots that he did in rawhide for this film so uh, he got good wear out of those Cow- boots. cowboy boots take a long time to wear in mm. Uh, and finally, the actress who played the role of Marisol was German-born yeah. Marianne Koch, who interrupted her medical studies to enter oh, acting wow. in the 1950s. In 1971, she quit acting to resume those studies and became a medical doctor in 1974. That's so cool. Her career as a specialist in Germany lasted until 1997, where she was also uh, hosting very successful TV talk shows. As of at least 2014, she has hosted medical advice programs on German radio. Wow. Mm. Very full and varied life. Very striking mm. eyes in this film. Yes. You're, you're saying you didn't like the colour of anyone's eyes. No, She's I didn't quite say... Eyes. I didn't say I didn't like the colour of None their of the guys eyes. have good-looking eyes in this no, film. No, I well. was just saying everything... And it was more a comment on the entire palette of mm. the film. The Technicolour was quite new. It was let a bit me finish. Brown. Thank was, you very it's much. It's going to be a bit brown. It's an early colour. Just defending the fit. Can't tell that we're in a relationship at all. <laughs> oh, I should point out, yeah, Scott and Katrina have been together forever. Um, <laughs> you might be able to tell by the way that they he, communicate. There are actually cameos in this film. You see us in the background of the apartment. We're the couple that dies in the first scene. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but yes, you were saying that you found... I think the specific comment was... Nobody seems to have nice coloured eyes in this film. But yeah. it's. I think you're right that the, the way the palette... Um, is shown there's very there's not a lot of color used in a way that s- makes people stand out beyond the man with no name yeah. and even then a lot of his colors are quite natural colors they're everything's dark greens very, everything's very muted everything everyone and every single thing looks dirty and not just because clearly people have like browned up hmm. a bit more um, everything looks oily, like it has a cheap Italian to- film equipment. Yeah, like mm. it has a tobacco grime across it, and mm. it's obviously like it, it works for the feel of the of the piece. Um, but yeah, I just found it interesting that in so many of these films, you you usually notice like particularly if a character has blue eyes, they're like really 
strikingly blue. Mm. But you didn't you didn't see that with any of them. That's interesting you say that though, because of in the Good, the Bad and the Ugly, isn't it Tuco that's constantly calling Clint Eastwood's character, Hey blue eyes. Yeah, Angel Eyes. Yeah, and Blondie. Yeah, They're... Blondie and Angel Eyes. Yeah. And, yeah. He's yeah, he's he's actually commented on his looks quite a lot because yeah. he's got blonde hair and he were the other two films filmed in Italy and Spain yeah, Europe they were as well? Filmed in yeah, Spain. Oh, okay. I mean, the, the, the third one, though, obviously had a, a bit more funding behind it because mm. the first two have proven to be so successful. Yeah, um, yeah the second one, um, Lee Van Cleef is in the film uh, and he's in the third one as well, who's a bigger name star at the time. The third film also adds Eli Wallach, who is... Um, Tuco. Is Tuco, and he's just brilliant. He's, mm. it, he's so, so much fun. Um, and that they do... You know, because this film had done so well, they were able to get more, essentially do everything a bit better. Yeah, yeah, bigger, longer, yeah, cool soundtrack, mm. um, amazing vistas, sets, scenery, props, um, mm. the explosions. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, they even do, um, yeah, American Confederate soldiers in disguise again. Like it's, it's they they reuse everything they were from this union, film. You said in this one, what's that? They were Union soldiers. Sorry, yes, no, um, American Confederate slash Union soldier um, uniforms. Uh, yes, in this one, it is Union soldiers. Yeah. Um, they play around with that a little bit in The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, mm. but uh, I will say no more in case uh, people more. have not seen that film yeah. because it's quite fun. Uh, all that remains, guys, is to score the film. Well, I will let Katrina show you how it's done because uh, it was her first time watching it. Katrina, what score would you give A Fistful of Dollars out of 10? Um, so I probably... I, I think I did enjoy it. As much as I don't think it's my kind of film. And yeah. it was impressive, I think, for all the reasons that we've spoken on. So sort of rounding that all out, I think I'd give it a um, six badly dubbed Clint Eastwood lines out of ten. That's fair. There were probably about that many in the film. <laughs> he doesn't say a lot. No, he had ten lines, I'm sure. Oh, yes. um, so, Scott, what would you give A Fistful of Dollars out of ten? Uh, look. It's a good film. I thoroughly enjoy it. I would give it slightly more than a six. Mm. I'd probably give it a seven. Uh, I'll give it a seven out of ten. But uh, as, as I probably mentioned at the start, it's difficult to look at this film in isolation from the other two films in the mm. trilogy. I can't give this one a high mark when I'm saving my nine and a half you know, slash ten out of ten for the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, and I, I think that's that's fair. I mean, also, you know, scores are almost meaningless they're essentially more just kind of like our own personal barometer of what we like and some people are able to look at these films independently and go yep this one's a two and the next one's a seven or whatever um but yeah that's absolutely fine seven out of ten we're shooting clint Clint eastwood and sergio leone into the spotlight it's a real important film a lot of cool stuff comes through it um yeah i'd probably rate the next one higher and yeah the good man the ugly higher than that i think it's worth mentioning, we sort of mentioned at the start, a lot of people will find this film via the gateway of The Good, The Bad and The Ugly because mm. um, that is one film that jumps to the top of the list every time someone says, oh, what, what do you mean you haven't seen this film? It'd be interesting to find out if there are any other films like that. Like, um, like I guess maybe a more recent one could be Mad Max. Fury Road. Like, people go, oh, go watch Fury Road. And then they're like, what? There's three other films? Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think that's that's a really good example. It, it, it feels yeah. weird, but if somebody was like, oh, I want to watch, you know, a Western or I want to watch a Sergio Leone Western, yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't direct them to this film. I'd say, all right, you need to sit down and watch The Good and the Bad and the Ugly. Mm. And if you like that and you thought it was a good film, check these out. There's more of the same. It's pretty awesome. Mm. Do you think maybe the trilogy is better in reverse? 
Poss- yeah, quite possibly. Ooh. I think I would argue that. I mean, it wouldn't really matter which order you see the other two films in. Yeah. But if you watch The Good, The Bad and The Ugly and you like it and you think it's a great film, mm. check this out. It's more of the same. You won't be disappointed. If you started on this one, you might not make it. I think you're less inclined to love it than you would be mm. yeah. The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. So start, start with the good one first yeah. and see these if you want more. I, I, I think that's entirely fair. For me, um, I... Again, it was a film that I knew I'd seen, but it was so conflated with the other two. Um, and I've realised that most of my memories are from the other two films. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's the big um, Marty McFly manoeuvre, as we say, uh, <laughs> with the with the with the armored chest. There's um, there's a few bits and pieces. You know, the, you know the line of uh, "Sorry, make that four coffins." Like that, that whole thing. Some of some of it stuck. Not a lot of it did. Um, and I think that's partly just because this film is is finding its feet it's it's trying um to showcase a particular type of story in a new way and i think it largely succeeds and i agree that it's very important um for for what it for what it did for both western cinema and for european cinema for clint eastwood's career and for our understanding of how westerns are made um so or I, how I, westerns can be made oh sorry how westerns can be made yeah, yeah. so um i'm gonna have to give it seven terrible terrible haircuts out of ten because <laughs> chico's hair it's like dreddy's isn't it it's so it's like dreddy's but it also of... looks like he's jewish orthodox i can't imagine him because he just doesn't give a damn like he's a dirty filthy yeah you can tell bandit, from like... his hair that he smells yeah he's just the worst haircut he's, like yeah. we, we, we've seen some bad haircuts in the 120 plus films we've done on this one <laughs> that's probably in the top 10 that's oh. probably just walked straight in there that yeah, is it's pretty rough it's, it's pretty shocking <laughs> uh all right that brings us to the end of this episode of the cinema catch-up club katrina and scott thank you very much for joining me on this episode thanks Stephen. it has been a pleasure thank you and for those of you listening at home, thank you for listening in. Hey, uh, do you want to give us a fistful of dollars? You can go to our Patreon. Uh, just go do so. Uh, go to www.patreon.com forward slash CCUC podcast. Uh, and you can leave your contributions there. Um, you'll get... Fistful of dollars. Yeah, yeah. Your segue is worth a buck at least. Come on. <laughs> yeah, please, please. Um, you'll also get bonus content um, from uh, offcuts from other episodes and you'll get early access to other things. Go on, give it a go. You'll enjoy it. Um, if you want to uh, be in touch the free way, uh, we're available on Facebook, um, but you won't get those bonus uh, features. Uh, just search for us, uh, the Cinema Catch-Up Club on Facebook. And of course, make sure you are subscribed for all of our films, be they good, bad or ugly. Uh, just make sure you're subscribed via iTunes, SoundCloud or other podcasting services. But that's all for this week. So until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.